After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. And as he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Um, Let me add a a welcome to you as well. My name is is Tim, and I serve as one of the pastors um, here. It's good to to be with you on um, this Easter. And uh, and especially if you're uh, you're an elementary or you're a kid and you're worshiping with us, if you didn't grab one of these green uh, Kid Connects sheets, um, feel free to go back. We have them on the back table. Um, It's a way for you to follow along kind of on, on your level. Um, but that's, uh, uh, or if you're an adult and you want to fill us uh, out and you want to follow along um, at that level, you can as, as well. Um, why don't I, uh, I pray for us and then we'll, uh, we'll jump into this text that we have this morning. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we come before you as people who need the hope of the resurrection. Who need hope that death does not end us and suffering will not ruin us. We need hope that that our joys um, here that we experience on this earth are not fleeting and short, but a foretaste of the world you have planned for us. So God, we want to believe it's true. Would you help our unbelief? Give us eyes to see the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, we hear that story, and even as I read that story, and and I just start asking, could this really have happened? Did this really happen? In an age of, of science where we can, we can verify almost anything through a test or through the right microscope, um, the story of angels sitting on stones and a dead person coming back to life, it's, it's hard to believe in our age. That's why a lot of people don't believe in our day. But I would even say that those of us who are Christians who say we believe in the resurrection, um, do we really believe that if it's true, if Jesus uh, was raised from the dead, then this isn't just some interesting, trivial uh, fact of history. The, the, uh, Tim Keller, uh, pastor, puts it like this. It's, it's, it's not like man walking on the moon. The fact that a, a human being walked on the moon is an incredible fact. It's an incredible thing when you think about it, but it makes, it, it makes no difference in your life this week. It won't. And yet, if the resurrection is, is true, it's not just a fact from history. It's not just an event that happened. It, it changes everything 
about the way that you live your life. And if, if we're Christians, if we say we believe this, then has the resurrection changed everything about the way you live your life? Do we actually believe this? And Matthew actually believed this. He claims he saw it. He wants you to believe. He wants me to believe. So I just want to, I want to approach the resurrection story like that and, and look at Matthew 28 under kind of three questions, three headings. That one, can we really believe this happens? Um, two, why is it so hard for us to believe? And, and thirdly, what does it change if it's true? Um, so first, what, can we believe this, this, this really happened? That a few years ago, I was, I was sitting at Starbucks. I was preparing a sermon for an upcoming um, Sunday. And so I had my headphones in, my Bible out. I was probably drinking a Frappuccino or something like that. Um, and, and, and this guy walks up to me, and he starts, he's, he's just standing over me, um, just lingering. And, and despite the, the abundant evidence that I had no interest in talking to him, uh, he, he lingered longer. Uh, so I took my headphones out, and, and, and I, I remember this. He just he puts his finger on my Bible, and he says, you know you can't trust any of that, right? I was just like, okay, well, let's have a conversation, um, since you want to have this conversation. And he was, really, he was really nice, and we had a really good conversation. And, and I, I would actually say he summed up really well what you would learn um, in your basic uh, kind of philosophy of religion or, or uh, um, you know, religious class 101 at your average state university, which is, is this, that, you know, Jesus... He was a really good man. He was a really good teacher. He lived a really good life. He was really influential in his day. Um, but over time, the disciples began to embellish certain things about him and sort of you know, added legends or added uh, stories that weren't necessarily true um, to, to his life. And they began to, to worship him as God much later on. And then you know, a couple centuries later, after all of that, uh, finally people wrote down these gospels like, like Matthew, like the text I just read for us. You know, a couple hundred years after he was, he was, Jesus actually lived, finally the stories got written down, but you can't trust them because they're, they're so far from the actual um, event. So it was, a really, it was a really helpful summary, and we had a really good um, conversation. But, but what, he's, what he's basically saying, what is, I think, a, a cultural assumption of many uh, in our culture is that the, the Gospels, the New Testament, it's kind of like what fake news is. Um, you know, like you get your, the, the email from your third cousin's grandmother who got it from some guy in Russia, and it for, she forwards it on to you, and it's like this thing that happened that nobody knows about, but now you know about it in your email. It's, it's sort of like that. That's, I think, how we look at the Gospels, but that's not, that's not the way Matthew's writing. It's not fake news, at least not the way he's presenting it. Now, maybe it's not true, but it's not written centuries after the fact. And so if, if you dive into Matthew 28, um, there's, there's a number of compelling reasons why I think you can believe this actually happened. But I, I want to focus in on three um, this morning. And first is that the tomb is empty. That's the first thing that, that, that's, that's an amazing fact by itself. That how does a body just go missing all of a sudden? Now, of course, that, that by itself, it's not a reason to believe in the resurrection. That um, The Jewish authorities in their day, they, they had a story. They said that the disciples came and stole the body out of the tomb... And that's why the body went missing. And that, that is a story. Um, it seems slightly implausible to me that some uh, backwoods uh, fisherman with no military training could steal from Roman soldiers. That seems like a stretch to me. But it is, it is an account for why the body would go missing. But another interesting thing from these verses is that it's clear Matthew's writing close to the actual events of this. That look at, here again, verses 13 through 15. When the, the religious leaders of the day um, say to the soldiers, here's what you're to do. Here's what happens. It says, uh, they say to the soldiers, tell people his disciples came by night, stole, um, stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him, keep you out of trouble. So they took the money as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. 
that that phrase to this day is, is, an, is an evidence that, that Matthew's not writing 200 years after the fact. Matthew says this debate is still happening. The eyewitnesses are still around debating as to why the tomb is empty. And, and so we have good reason to believe Matthew's writing within about 30 years of the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. Other New Testament writings, um, the Gospel of Mark, uh, the letter to the First Corinthians, the letter to Galatians, are written between 15 to 20 years after um, Jesus' death and, and resurrection. And so what you have is you have th- these documents written down within the lifetime of, of people who were there and saw or didn't see what happened. And everyone agrees the tomb, the tomb was empty. That's not a debate. A, Jesus' body went missing and no one knew where it went. Which is an amazing fact in and of itself. But again, by itself, it doesn't mean much. You need something else. And so the second thing that you, you have in Matthew 28 is you have the testimony of, of eyewitnesses. And if you want to d- dive deep into this sort of stuff, there's a really good, it's a thick scholarly book, but it's called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham. It's a good uh, book worth reading because he dives into to how it's, the eyewitness testimony is just clearly all over Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so one thing Bauckham points out is that here in Matthew 28, you have two women who discover the empty tomb, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary is, is who Matthew refers to. And th- this is important because in that day, Women's testimony was not, uh, was not considered admissible in, in courts. Now, I just want to be very clear. I do not agree with this. I'm not affirming this position. Um, this was very sexist and wrong. But you could not, as a woman, go into court and testify because no one trusted your testimony because you were, you were a woman. And, and so what Bauckham says is that Matthew has no good reason to make this up. And if you're going to make up a story of people discovering an empty tomb, you wouldn't put two women there. You'd put two, you'd put two respectable Men, but, but Bauckham says Matthew's not making this up. This is how it actually happened. There were two women who found a tomb empty and claimed they saw Jesus alive in the garden. And so that, that, that's one piece of eyewitness testimony um, you, you see. But you'll get, you get more of that as you read through the New Testament. You have the two Marys here. Matthew, who's writing this account, he's one of the 11 disciples. Um, so Matthew's saying, I saw the resurrected Christ. In Luke, uh, Luke names a man named Cleopas who saw the resurrected Christ. The Apostle Paul, who wrote more of the New Testament, says, I saw the Apostle, I saw the risen Christ. And at one point he even says, which is just weird to me, but he says, at one point this risen Christ appeared to 500 people at once. Which just sounds strange, but then Paul says right after that, and, and many of them are still alive. Which he's saying there, if you want to know more about this, come talk to me. I can, I can point you to them. I can, I can tell you who they are, you can go and talk to them. And so what you have is you have, in the first century, the tomb of Jesus goes empty. It goes, the body of Jesus goes missing. The tomb's empty. And then you have literally hundreds of people saying, and I saw him alive. Right? The, tomb, the empty tomb by itself, it doesn't mean much. But the, an empty tomb, a missing body, and hundreds of people saying, I saw him. It's compelling. And then you go beyond that. And these, these people devoted their lives to the poor. They... they they went to the, the, the remotest places of the world to tell people, Jesus is alive, he's risen, there's good news. They endured suffering. Many of them died for their own faith. These, these are, in other words, these aren't crazy people who just hallucinated something. There's eyewitness testimony that Jesus was actually alive. And maybe you're, you're still sitting there, you're thinking, okay, but back then people believed in this sort of thing, right? Back then, the people, they, you know, they're, they're more gullible than, than we are, um, and so the, the third thing in Matthew 28 is, is not just there's eyewitness testimony in an empty tomb, but there's also, there's skepticism of the eyewitnesses themselves. 
And I would just say, just in, a, in general practice, it's never a good idea for an argument against something to be, to be, you know, something along the lines of, well, you know, those people then were just way stupider than I am now. I'm, I'm just far more brilliant than they were, um, and that's why I can't believe the thing that they, that's not a, that's not a very humble argument. Um, but even that, it's, it's actually not true, because these eyewitnesses had every reason not to believe in the resurrection than you, that you and I have. Now, most of the eyewitnesses, they're all Jewish people. And there's two things about Jewish people that would have meant that they, they would have been very unlikely to believe this happened. The first is, is Jewish people were basically the only religious people who would never, never make an idol and would never consider worshiping a human being as God. So what, if you went to the Jewish temple to worship, there wasn't a little, a little man-made, human-looking item that you, that you would go and worship. The Jews were completely against that. And yet, yet in the first century, suddenly hundreds, soon thousands, soon tens of thousands of Jewish people start worshiping a human being as God. They would never have done this unless they saw something that compelled them to. But beyond that, they... they they would not have expected an individual person to be raised from the dead. The Jewish people did believe in a resurrection, but what they believed about the resurrection was at the end of the, the world, then everybody gets raised at once. One human being doesn't get raised um, in the middle of history. That doesn't happen. And that's why the women who go to the empty tomb go expecting to find a dead body whom they can care for. Right? And I didn't read all of Matthew 27 and 28, but what you have in Matthew 27 is some of Jesus' friends take his body they place it in the tomb. The Roman soldiers guard it. And the women who go to the tomb are going to, to, um, to care for Jesus' now deceased body. They don't go expecting to find an empty tomb. They go expecting to care for a dead body. It's because a Jewish person would never have thought this, this was possible. <laughs> and so for us in our day, um, right? I understand if you're sitting there thinking, because I think this too. Like, if I'm going to believe this, if I'm going to believe a man was raised from the dead, I have to see something incredible in order to believe that. I understand that. And many of us, we don't, we don't see that. And, and, and yet I would say, do you at least see the, the people in the first century would have been sitting there saying the same thing. If I'm going to worship this human being, if I'm going to believe in the resurrection, if I'm going to become a Christian, I have to see something incredible to change my mind. And the reality is they saw it. And they believed they believed in the resurrection, and, and so can we. There's compelling reasons. I'm not saying it's easy, but at the very least, I can say as, as Christians, we don't, right, we don't treat this like fake news. We say, ask, ask hard questions, push in. I think there is credible evidence, and the best explanation for the church, for the early disciples, for the empty tomb of Jesus, is that, that Jesus really was raised from the dead. We're not afraid to ask hard questions there. We really believe that you can believe this. So that, that's one. Can you believe it? Yeah, yes. <laughs> they had every reason to believe in that day or to not believe in that day that we have, and yet they, they believed. And second, then, why, so why is it so hard for us to believe? And here's what I want to say. You know, science or the fact that we need evidence, that is a reason why many of us don't believe today. But there's something, there's something more happening in our hearts that make it hard for us to believe as well. The thing about what's happening in Matthew 28, that the people who are most resistant to the idea of the resurrection are are not non-believers, not people who don't believe in God. They're, <laughs> they're the pastors of the day, the ones who lead the worship, the ones who lead the prayers, the ones who lead the singing, who lead the temple worship. They're the ones constructing the story as to why the tomb is, is, is empty and it's not a resurrection. And so these, these people who read their Bibles, they prayed, they, 
They did all they were supposed to do. These people are a window into why it's, it's so hard for you and I to believe the resurrection. And it's not just because of science. There's something else that goes on among us. I think of it like this. It's, it's easy for us to live life um, on an autopilot. Tomorrow you're going to drive to work and you're going to get there and you're not going to have thought about how you got there. And even though I just told you you're going to do that, you're going to get to work tomorrow and think, oh, I tried to think about how I drive to work and I still didn't because you just live on autopilot. There are things you just do again and again and again. And what, what the Bible says we do about, as human beings towards God is we, just, we live life without reference to him all the time. And so we can go through life where God may be trying to get our attention. He may be present and evident among us, but we, we just drive right past. We're on autopilot. We just cruise right past him. That's what the religious leaders are doing here. They're not living life with reference to God. Even though they're in their Bibles, even though they're praying, even though they're, they're worshiping, they, they just drive right past God again and again and again. So, so much to the point where God can come right before them and they, they can't see. They're blind. And think of it like this. I've been listening to a, a podcast recently called um, Startup. It's about a, a guy who's starting his own um, business and telling the story of what that's, that's like and, and um, over the last year or so, his company, it's grown a lot since the podcast had started. It's, it's, it's become very successful. And so uh, the, the CEO, his name's Alex, is beginning to recognize that if, that if he doesn't begin to change the way he does his job, his company, is, it's going to slowly die. And yet he doesn't want to make the change because he likes what he's doing now. He's having fun um, in the job he gets to do now. That's why he started the company, so he could do the things he's doing now. And now everyone's saying to him, you can't do those things anymore. You have to start worrying about the direction of the company and money and the, the responsibilities and the challenges. And he's just, he's struggling to make that move because he wants to have fun and he doesn't want to take on the responsibility. And so he's, he's processing this with his mentor through the podcast. And there's this moment when he begins to understand why he's doing this, why he's refusing responsibility and, and trying just to do what's, what he enjoys doing, what's fun for him. And the reason is, is his own father at one point in his life had, had built a really successful company. Um, and it got into a similar point where it was incredible responsibility. There was lots of pressure. There were lots of people he was in charge of. And his dad, Alex's dad, decided rather than embrace the responsibility, he sold the company, made a lot of money, and spent most of the rest of his life um, just smoking pot and damaging the relationships of those who he's, he was closest to, his, his own son, his wife, um, his closest friends. And so Alex begins to see, I'm, I'm doing the same thing that my dad did that I hate about him. And yet until that moment, he had no idea. He was just he was cruising along, making decisions, going about life, headed for destruction, and had no idea. And so his, his mentor, he, he quoted um, Carl Jung, to, uh, a psychologist, to explain what Alex was doing. Here's the quote, which has stuck with me. Um, Carl Jung says, until we make the unconscious conscious... We will be dictated to buy it. Um, that's, the, that's the quote in the podcast. The actual quote by, by Young is, until we make the unconscious conscious, we will, uh, we, we will be uh, directed um, to buy it. In other words, our unconscious will decide for us how we live our lives. So what, what he's saying there is if you don't look at yourself in the mirror, if you don't take a good, long, hard look, most of your life it's lived on autopilot. And you're, you're not going to understand why you do much of what you do. And you're most likely going to make decisions that are, in the end, destructive. So pulling that away from, you know, CEO company and into the, the presence of God, I would just ask, how many of us, when it comes to God, make the unconscious conscious? 
that the, there are these, these moments when God is trying to get through to you, do you see those? When he actually is present among you, trying to get through, but do you just drive right past him? If, if you are religious, if you're a Christian, um, if you're reading the Bible, if you're praying, if you're listening to a, a sermon and something just contradicts the way you think or, or begins to, to make you feel a little guilty, you know you're doing something wrong, do you, do you push into that moment or do you, do you push away from that moment? That when you, you begin to, to doubt and, and you're not sure that something about God is true, do you push in further and ask questions and go and, and ask for God to make himself known to you? Or you just kind of, you ask the questions and you just move on. You just drive, you just drive past. But is your life with God, is it on autopilot? Are you seeking him? Are you seeking after him, looking for him? And if you're not religious, if you're not someone who believes in God, have you, have you made the unconscious conscious? Have you thought about the implications of what it means of a universe without, without God? I'll just give one example. Uh, Francis Crick, who was um, one of the co-discoverers of the human DNA, so a very smart guy, scientist, um, had thought out the implication of his own atheism and, and at one point wrote, wrote this. He said, your joys and sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their assorted molecules. As Lewis Carroll's Alice might have phrased it, you're nothing but a pack of neurons. And I think what he's doing there is, is he's making the, the unconscious about God conscious. If there's no, if there's no God, this is what he's saying is true. We're just physical material beings, nothing more, just nothing more than a pack of neurons, and, and that's it. So he's confronting the way he views the universe, and he's, he's honest about it. And yet I would say, all of us hear that quote, and I, listen, whether you believe in God or not, all of us hear that quote and we think, no, that's not true. Or at least we, we don't want it to be true. Right? None, of us, none of us look at the people we love most and think, well, that's, that's a pack of neurons. Or when we suffer, we don't think, well, at least it's all meaningless and none of this will matter in the end anyway. I'm just a pack of neurons. That's not why we hurt so much when things go wrong in our life. We don't look at our kids, we don't look at our spouse, we don't look at our closest friends and say, well, that's just, that's just physical matter. We know there's something more there. And what I would say is that, that, that more that you feel, that is God in your unconscious saying, stop, look at me, I'm here in this. <laughs> I'm present, I'm real. You're not just a pack of neurons. And in those moments, don't drive right past him. Stop and seek and look. But I would just, as we pause now, we move into the last point of the sermon. Can, can you look now at what, what it would mean at a universe with the resurrection as true? That if the resurrection really happened, what, what changes for us? That even, I love the way Matthew 28 is constructed. Because I used to think that the angel comes down and, and rolls, out, rolls the tomb away and Jesus like walks out, um, you know, you know and, and like a mic drop moment or something like that. Or like when the chiefs run out of Arrowhead and like fire lights up. It's like that's what, that's what I imagine. And yet what, you, what actually is happening in Matthew 28, when the stone rolls away, Jesus is already gone. Like the stone wasn't like keeping Jesus stuck in the tomb and then he got out. The, the reason the stone is rolled away is so that when the women get there, they can see for themselves. And that's what I want to do now. I, want to, I just want to let the stone roll back and let all of us, whether you're a Christian and you believe with all your heart, whether you're a Christian, you doubt, you struggle, whether you're not a Christian, just let the stone roll back and look into a world where the resurrection is true.
what changes? Well, I want to say three things about what changes. The, the first, if, if the resurrection is true, you, you are never alone. God is offering to be with you until the end. And we're going to talk more about that next week. That's next week's um, sermon. But, but the last words that Jesus speaks in the Gospel of Matthew, the words Matthew leaves with us from Jesus are these. And behold, Jesus is speaking, and behold, I am with you always till the end of the age. And you even see that in Matthew 28. I love this. The women, they come looking for Jesus' dead body. The angel says, Jesus is risen, and they're freaking out. They're, they're looking around, where is he? And, and then Jesus has already found them, and he says, greetings, I'm here. Right? It's such a metaphor, I think, for those of us who, who try to live this life of faith. You seek after Jesus. He's not there. He's not there. Where is he? What's happening? What's going on? And then, and then he's just there, and he was there all along. And that's it. Listen, if the resurrection is true, the God of the universe isn't just distant off on a throne somewhere. He is, he wants to be personally present in your life. And I would even say he already is, whether you see him or not. You will never be alone if the resurrection is true. And not just in the sense that Jesus is like there with you, because um, that would just be kind of weird and creepy if he's just like there all the time. But he's there as, as someone who has suffered for you, who is as someone who, who loves you so much he gave his own life for you. The resurrection is true. You'll, you'll never be alone. No matter how dark your day is, no matter how sad you are, even your greatest joys, you're not alone. So that, that's first. If the resurrection is true, you're not alone. Second, if the resurrection is true, you have meaning in life that no one can take from you, that nothing can take from you. And when I say this, what, I, what I'm not saying is that you need God to have a meaningful life. I don't, think, I don't think that's true. I think you can have a very meaningful life whether you believe in God or, or not. But if you don't believe in God, then your meaning in life is always going to be very, very, very fragile. Because the primary way we find meaning in our life is we, we determine what makes us happy and we go and we get it. Like it's, it's a good career. It's a good family. It's a good job. It's the right house. It's the right income, right? It's we, we find what makes us happy. We go out and we pursue it. And yet, if that's, if that's where your meaning in life comes from, it's, it's, going to be, it's always going to be fragile. Because like something could come and take it all away from you at any moment. And so Tim Keller, he talks about this in his book, Making Sense of God. Here's, here's what he says about us and how we try to find meaning. He says, when, when secular people create their meanings, however, it must be around something located inside the material world. You might be living for your family or for a political cause or for career accomplishments. But when suffering disrupts this, it is the power to destroy your very meaning. The secular approach to meaning can leave you radically vulnerable to the realities of how life goes in this world. <clears throat> the reality is you and I, we, we have an incredibly, incredibly, uh, incredible amount of resources to, to chase our meaning in life. The education available to us, the financial resources available to us, the career opportunities available to you. You and I can chase our meaning in life in so many ways, but what Keller is saying is at some point, most likely if you live long enough, something is going to happen to you that's going to take all of it away in an instant. You can't, you can't, if your life and your meaning only comes from what's inside the material world, it's, it's vulnerable and it's fragile. But if your meaning in life comes from the resurrection, it, it's not fragile. It, what I love is that the women, um, they're in the cemetery when they meet Jesus, and they leave the cemetery in great joy. And listen, if there's a place that, that more reveals our fragility as human beings, the, the, the fleetingness of the meaning we find in life, the, 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 just the vulnerability we are as human beings, it's the cemetery. And if you can leave the cemetery in great joy, you have found a meaning in life that nothing can, can take from you. 
And that's precisely what the resurrection is. And I would just ask, do you have that kind of meaning in life? Where the worst thing imaginable could happen to you. And it would hurt. It would be painful, right? It would be, but, the, but behind all of that, there would be a meaning in life that's not shaken for you. Is that, is, could that happen to you? Is that true for you? Because it's not just that the resurrection says, oh, you get to go to heaven when you die and it'll all be right. That, that, actually, I don't think that would be that encouraging. Um, um, if, if, I mean, it would be, but, but it wouldn't be that encouraging if, if, um, if the rest of the story of the gospel wasn't true. Which is not just that Jesus says, hey, you can get to heaven. Like, life's going to be terrible now, but it'll be better later. Like, that, that's a little encouraging, but what's really encouraging to me is, that, is if, if the gospel's true, if Christianity is true, then at the center of the universe is this, this principle where, where glory comes through suffering, where your salvation is won for you on a cross, where it's when Jesus is most weak and most filled with shame and most powerless and most vulnerable. That's the moment you and I are saved. And if that's, if that's how salvation comes through for us who are Christians, then that means when you're at that moment of vulnerability and weakness and shame and you have your dependence and, and you can't save yourself, you know that. Well, you, you can look back to the cross and say, glory comes from this. I'm not going to look at the setting in this moment in my life and say nothing good can come from this. Because I might have said the same thing about the cross. All right, look at this guy, just dead, Jesus, murdered, crucified. What a waste. And yet three days later, he goes into the tomb. We, we are saved through suffering, which becomes glory. And that means you have a meaning in life that even suffering, su- suffering just leads to more glory. A cross just leads to an empty tomb. The universe is different with a stone rolled back. It's different. Well, thirdly, then, um, what the resurrection changes about your own life is that your happiness, it's not, it's not an illusion. Right? It, almost anything, actually everything that makes you happy, for the most part, it, it fades, it breaks down. The people you love, they're breaking down, they're fading. The things you love to do, they're, they're breaking down, they're fading. Right? I love to play golf. I realize at some point, I'm not physically going to be able to play golf anymore, right? Like, even little things like that, like, it's, it, it's all breaking down. It's all going away. And it's why um, Robert Faust, uh, a poet, and poets are they're horribly depressing, right? Let's be honest. I mean, if you are a poet, I, I get it. But, like, it's, he just penned this really horribly depressing poem about, called Nothing Gold Can Last. And here, here it is. Um, happy Easter. Um, uh, Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold, her early leaves a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief. So dawn goes down to day, nothing gold can stay. And what he's saying is everything that makes you happy, it can't stay. Everything that's gold to you, you're going to lose at some point. It can't stay. And yet you look at all the best stories we tell, the best movies we watch, the best books we read, and none of them, none of them tell that poetry. Right? I mean, it, it all, it all, it's all there right up until the moment it's not. Right? The, you see the city's falling or the pe- you're, you look like you're going to die. You're, you, know, you need rescue and then suddenly out of nowhere rescue comes. This, this, we tell these stories to our, ourselves all the time of rescue in the, the face of hopelessness, in the face of meaninglessness. And J.R.R. Tolkien, author of one of the best of our stories like this, The Lord of the Rings, he tells us why we do that, why we don't tell stories about nothing gold can stay, and why we keep telling stories about the gold does stay, and and everyone lived happily ever after. He says it um, like like this. He says, it, the the rescue, the salvation, um, in these stories, it does not deny the existence of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. 
It denies in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat. And insofar is Evangelion. It's good news. That's what Evangelion means. It gives a, a fleeting glimpse of joy. Joy beyond the walls of this world. Poignant as grief. So what he's saying is, is we, we tell these stories where this, this salvation seems to come from outside the world. Where everything looks lost and everything's hopeless and everyone's going to die. No, no one's going to live happily ever after. And then rescue comes from outside the world and suddenly everything's okay. And as he finishes his essay, he tells, he tells us why we do this. Why we tell these stories over and over and over again. Why we keep reading those books over and over again. Why we keep going to, to see those movies over and over again. Here's why. He says, the Gospels contain a story which embraces the essence of all fairy tales. But this story has entered history and the primary real world. The Gospel has not abrogated legends. It has hallowed them. Especially the happy ending. What he's saying there is, is when you get to this moment of rescue in a movie, oftentimes you're, you're almost moved to tears, you're, you're, you're moved to joy, right? You, you experience this, this thing in, in, in what he calls the turn, where things go from hopeless to salvation. We all experience that all the time. And what he's saying is the gospel says that you, you experience that, that moment of joy of rescue, um, because God has rescued you in the resurrection, in the gospel. And so we don't, we don't tell movies and stories with depressing endings all the time because there is a God. There is a, an out-of-this-world rescue that's entered into our story and entered into our history. It's called Jesus, and it's why the tomb was rolled back and was empty. That's why we don't, we don't look at Frost's poem as the final word. We know nothing gold can stay, right? As Christians, we're not naive. We know everything we love is breaking down, and it's why this morning is so meaningful to us. Because in the resurrection, Frost's poem, it, it's true, but it's not true. Your happiness, it's not an illusion. Everything that's gold to you, that's meaningful in life, that gives you joy, it's the God of the universe making himself known to you, trying to make the unconscious conscious, to draw you into an empty tomb, stone already back, to show you your rescue, that your life has changed, the tomb is empty, there is good news, and every happy ending you've ever felt in any movie, that can be yours in Christ. So go and look for him and let him find you because in Jesus, everything that is gold will stay. Let us pray. God, I think of that statement, everything gold stays and I want to believe it. And yet God, as, as Tolkien said, there is much evidence to the contrary in our life and in our world and in our experience and so I pray that you would, you would open our eyes to the rescue Jesus has given us through the, through the empty tomb, through the resurrection. God, would you help us to believe? Would you, would you show us yourself? God, would you call out to us greetings as we seek and look for you? And God, above all, would you this day remind us that, um, that death is not the last word. Death has lost its sting, tomb is empty, and that Jesus reigns and lives now. God, help us to live in the light of that truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.